Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. The city of Charleston may be in South Carolina, not in Florida, but it retains strong historical ties to the U.S. government's Indian removal campaign of the 1830s and 1840s. Fort Moultrie and the Port of Charleston served as a holding area for Seminole awaiting passage to the Oklahoma Territory. In addition to many Seminole who were under its care, the Army also detained the famous Seminole warrior Osceola. He's buried just outside its gates. Dr. Wesley Moody, a member of the Council on America's Military Past, or CAMP, joins us to discuss the historical ties between Charleston and the Florida Territory during the Seminole Wars. He then invites listeners to consider attending CAMP's October conference in Charleston, where they can visit the sites he discusses, as well as revolutionary and Civil War sites at that port city. Dr. Moody closes with an orientation to what CAMP does and how one can learn more about the organization and this fall's conference. Dr. Wesley Moody, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Well, thank you very much for having me. Wesley, what is CAMP, and how does its next conference site at Charleston, South Carolina, have ties to the Seminole Wars? Council on America's Military Past, and we will be having our yearly conference in Charleston. Still in the planning stages, but I know Fort Sumter, I can see Fort Moultrie, The original Fort Moultrie was made out of palm trees. Fort Moultrie is where a number of Seminole leaders made their last stop, either permanently in the case of Osceola or on their way to Oklahoma, as so many others did. Besides going and paying homage to Osceola, it's also the staging area. One of the southernmost points before you get to Florida, a lot of the army that ended up being sent to Florida is stationed, organized in Charleston, where they were sending down. Besides Fort Moultrie and Osceola's grave related to the Second Seminole War, what else can you see in Charleston? It's a city rich in history. Maritime Museum there is something to see. One of the best in the American Southeast. In addition, you can see an American aircraft carrier. Which one is that? Yorktown. I've never been on the Yorktown. I'm looking forward to that. And guess how different things would have been if Yorktown had been around at the time. Back to some analysis of Fort Moultrie and its place in the Second Seminole Wars. Why did the Army start using Fort Moultrie in South Carolina over Fort Marion at St. Augustine in Florida to hold Seminole captives awaiting deportation to the Oklahoma Territory? What made Fort Moultrie in Charleston Harbor a better location to hold Seminole than the one it already had at St. Augustine with Fort Marion? It's just good location, good port. For one thing, Fort Marion's obviously dated. Fort Marion, by that point, was uh, 140 years old, so there were problems there. It was local for many of the same reasons that the United States sent 
prisoners of war to Florida during the Second World War, we send Seminoles to Charleston. They escape. They're someplace else there in South Carolina. If you escape in Florida, you're, well, still in Florida. And that's two steps back. Of course, there's famous escape from Fort Marion, Seminole Chief Wildcat, and there's all kind of debate about how many got out. Wildcat said there was just two of them. Other sources say there was as many as 20, and exactly how they got out is debated. If you're in the area, go visit the Castilla. They will show you on the tour the window Chief Wildcat supposedly squeezed out of, and it looks nearly impossible. So windows like 20 feet off the ground, and then beyond that, it is a narrow slit. So it starts off wide, and it gets more and more narrow until the part you actually have to get through to get outside is probably like about eight inches. You know, then you have to drop on the other side. There was a big investigation of how this happened. They didn't know. They were at least honest in that. But yeah, we don't know. Who was this wildcat, one of the two who escaped? By his reckoning, at least, anyway. Wildcat, he was a very interesting character. They would let him and some of the other chiefs that were at Fort Marion, they let them out and they'd go to parties in St. Augustine. They'd have ball, Wildcat would show up and the people would want to meet him and that type of thing. It's very possible he had friends. I guess this was some kind of special parole? They were allowed to go, and I think they were escorted when they went, that if important people in St. Augustine requested the presence of Wildcat, the army to deliver him. What can you say about Osceola, who was deported to Fort Moultrie? The dies at Fort Moultrie. It was either yellow fever or malaria or some tropical disease. And the doctor at Fort Moultrie, the two of them actually, they were friends, spent a lot of time together and discussions, that type of thing. And when Osceola passed away, they buried him right outside the fort and they've got a nice palm tree shading the grave. It's very nice. But the doctor cut off Osceola's head and kept it as a souvenir. Took it home with him when he went back to New York. He would later say, as I mean, a, a remembrance of his friends. And his children would later write that when they were young, that when they wouldn't do like they were supposed to, they wouldn't eat their vegetables or go to bed on time or whatever, that the threat in the household was, don't make me bring out Osceola's head. So if they didn't behave, he'd go to the desk and bring out the old chief's head. Probably isn't a psychologically healthy way to raise children. When the doctor died, they donated Osceola's head to the Surgeon's Museum at New York University. And in the 1863 draft riots during the Civil War, the museum was burnt to the ground. Uh, and so Osceola's head is part of the ashes. We know the head was donated. And so, and then the museum is gone, so we can assume. Lope came out and visited him, and Wildcat, they sent him directly out to Oklahoma. Tell us a little bit more about Fort Moultrie. Fort Moultrie is a national park, and it is on, if you look at a map of Charleston Harbor, it's on the northern edge of the harbor. Today, you'd say it's in the suburbs of Charleston. It's about a 10-minute drive from downtown Charleston, I believe. It's a beautiful national park. They've preserved it pretty much the way it was in the 1850s. From there, you can beautiful side of the city, and you can see Fort Sump from, from its walls. But before you go into the fort, there's a museum of Fort Moultrie, the events that happened, and it's a, it's a National Park Service museum there. You walk out the back door of the museum, and you actually cross the road, and there's Fort Moultrie just across the road. And there's a path leading up to the main gate, and right by the main gate, there is Osceola. You can't miss him, and he's just there by himself in a little 
iron fence around them and pretty little palm tree. Got a nice marble gravestone. It really is very respectful, final resting place for Osceola. Every now and then, the state of Florida makes an effort to retrieve him, but I don't ever see that being successful. What other markers, places, or museums are of historical note for people visiting Charleston? Of course, there's the Hunley, the Confederate submarine that went down that was later recovered years later. What else is there? Now they've got a good military museum there dedicated to the South Carolina militia. And museum like they have at Sumter, like they have at Moultrie, one of my motivations of the Anderson biography, you're able to go and, and really get a good sense of who the 19th century soldier was, who were these guys that were fighting the Second Seminole War. And the Moultrie Museum and the Sumter Museum, I think, all offer that view of like Anderson with the third artillery, I mean, these these are the kind of places you're, you're plucking these men out of. These are the barracks they normally spend their lives in. These are the ramparts that are usually walking, and this is the life they're used to. This is the kind of duty they're used to, and then let's go drop them down in the Everglades. Going to a place like Charleston, going to a place like those four, Fort Clinch in Florida, Fort Pickens out in Pensacola to give a shout out to some Florida tourist destinations. Those places really give you a sense of what the soldier's normal life was like for and after fighting the Seminole Wars. We think of Charleston historically for the Civil War, but a number of Revolutionary War battles were fought in Charleston or the general vicinity. What were those? Charleston is the home of several Revolutionary War battles. It did go back and forth a couple of times during the war. Like I said, the conference is still in the planning stages but hopefully we will get out there and get to some of the Revolutionary War battlefields. A little interesting Charleston side note there with General Lincoln, the surrender of Charleston. That was kind of a mark against his name. So at the end of the war, when General Cornwallis was trapped at Yorktown and had to surrender to Washington, he refused to go out. So he sends a colonel out there to hand his sword over to Washington. French wouldn't accept it. Well, Washington kind of picked up on this insult right away. So Washington refused to accept the sword, and it was General Lincoln who accepted the sword from the British. Washington knew what he was doing here, and Lincoln, for the rest of his life, was not the man who surrendered Charleston. For the rest of his life, he was the man that accepted the surrender at Yorktown. So he never bought himself another drink after that again. He never walked into a bar. Ah, let's get him around. So Washington saved his reputation with that small gesture. Charleston offers side-by-side -side many different eras of American military history. Wesley, we've talked all about the things that you can see in Charleston that are related to history, related to military history, and related to the Seminole Wars in particular. Tell us more about your organization that is sponsoring this conference, CAMP. It is a gathering of people that really have a passion for history, especially military history. Wesley, we focused on things to see in Charleston, but we didn't talk about the academic portion of the camp conference. People presenting on historical topics. How painful is this going to be? I've been to academic conferences, but it's, it's yawning and boring. I'm there to, you know, I can put it on my resume that I've been here. That is not what the camp conference is. There are professionals there. You'll get an opportunity to meet some people that are very interesting people with, you know, historically related jobs. And then there are just passionate amateurs. And it, it's people that, that love history. We get together. They do bring experts in to talk about. You'll learn more about what's happening at Fort Sumter, what Charleston brings to the, uh, the military history picture. 
Um, we'll learn a lot. It's a great conference in that sense. It's aimed at what happened. It's aimed at understanding what happened. These are the events on the ground, not the theoretical aspects of history that drive away so many uh, people that are interested in it. It's good history and people that like I said, love the field that are there. I'll tell you this, just kind of on a personal note, I wrote this in the newsletter. My first history conference as a grad student was at the camp conference. And then I delivered a paper and met some very interesting people. I said, I mean, everybody was passionate about the field. And it was my first. It ruined me for every other history conference. Just so well done. And just the people that are there. Just I'll say it again. The people that were there just had such a passion for history that nothing else, no other conference has been able to compare. So many conferences you go to as an historian, and I'm there for a line on the resume. I'm there to say I was there kind of thing. But the people that are coming to the camp conferences are there to learn, and it's all about history. It's a great group, as you know. It's not an academic conference. There, there'll be academics there. There'll be professionals there. But it is open to all, and it's definitely aimed at the non-professional historian. You'll find in a lot of academic conferences, there is a whole drive to, I need to deliver a paper there because I need it for my resume or my CV or that type of thing. And there is a sense, too, at conferences, the academic conferences, the American Historical Association, groups like that, we need to be on the cutting edge. You know, So if you talk about an event, what is the latest philosophical take on this? What is the latest history is lost sometimes? The, the what actually happened, history of it is lost a lot of the time. So this is a conference. The speakers that are brought in, the papers that are presented, this is a conference if you want to learn more about American military history, that's what's being presented. Not that if I don't have a master, I'm left behind. This is about what happened. It's a great opportunity to come and see and to learn. You didn't mention, Wesley, what was the city where you went to your first camp conference? Well, my first one was in Chattanooga. So we were right there among the battlefields. We were there. We talked about the importance of touching and feeling and doing the, when it comes to the archives. When you talk about these things and you can look out the window and boom, there it is. There's a feel to it that you don't get if you're not at the location. A lot of conferences, just you go to New Orleans and you can go listen to a talk about South Australian history. We focus the papers, we focus everything on things at Charleston uh, or things nearby in Charleston. So you can go and you can learn and then go to the site. Go out, have an expert come in and talk about Fort Sumter and what happened there, and then you take your boat right out to Fort Sumter. And when you see the place, you've got more background of what's going on than the usual tourist that goes in. It's definitely a place steeped in history. You did briefly say what camp is. Please give us a little bit more detail about what camp does. CAMP is an organization that we have members as far as Hawaii to the coast of Maine, and it is an opportunity for us to get together, uh, for us to uh, come together and have these discussions, and it's just, we're a like-minded group. That I have no other way to put it, but we enjoy these. CAMP, uh, Council on America's Military Past, actually wasn't the original name. The original name was the Council on Abandoned Military Posts, and it was a group of military officers back in the mid-60s. Their concern was these Western forts, these Indian War forts out of the American West, that they were being forgotten. The wind was blowing them away out there. 
So they started this organization to try to save them. And then as it grew, they made the decision, we should be bigger than these abandoned military posts. Mission should be preserve all of America's military past. They came up with a name that the initials still work, Council on America's Military Past, and it's an organization that's grown. It's still about preserving America's military past. You do that two ways. You do that one as in the knowledge of knowing what's happening, what happened, and you do it historical preservation, the actual places, the actual, you know, this is where history happened. This, you, know, you walk in the, the first shots were coming this direction when you're standing at Fort Sumter. The organization really, I mean, it has that both sides to it, and you can do the academic side. You can talk about places, you can talk about what happened, but the conference really is about visiting those places, leaving a footprint. The mission is to preserve the memory of these places, to preserve the places as well. Florida has lost so many of it, the Seminole War Fort. It's an organization that is open to anybody. There are professional historians like me. There are a number of people that are you know, directors of museums, professionals. And then we have a lot of people, a lot of members that history is their hobby. And a lot of people that are in management of the organization, they're medical doctors, they're lawyers. And as a museum director, as, as a writer of history books, somebody's got to buy those books, somebody's got to visit those museums. Outreach, we're open to anybody that has an interest in America's military past. We put out several publications during the year. We have a what's called the Journal of America's Military Past. It's, it's uh, not academic, it, it, it's papers, uh, it's Anyone can write and submit. It's peer-reviewed, and it's the history part. It is, this is what happened. And it's always interesting articles in there about um, a lot of little-known events in America's military past, and sometimes a different take on more well-known things. The journal's got a very good book review section, and a lot of times, sometimes university presses will come out with a very good book on military history, and they'll make the decision not to overly advertise it. It's just a business decision. Those books, a lot of times, will find their way into the Jamf review section. I've discovered a number of books that I wanted to read, that I wanted as part of my library, that I might not have heard of if I've not seen it on the in the book review. You definitely get your money's worth with, with the journal. And yet you have a choice, yeah, either as a, a PDF, you can load it on your phone and read it whenever you have a chance, or if you're old-fashioned like me, you can get your paper copy. Uh, we also have what is called the Heliogram. So the Heliogram is our shorter publication. Uh, we bring it out four times a year, and it is the newsletter. And mostly, I'm currently the editor. I'm now working on my second edition of the Heliogram. What it focuses on is a little more of the preservation side. It deals with things that are in the news currently. It deals with forts that they're trying to save or shipwrecks that have recently been discovered and they're researching. Obviously, when the whole uh, statue toppling thing was happening last summer, we, we covered that. So it's historical preservation in the news is what the heliogram covers. And it's eight pages, and it's just keeping you up to date in the field of historical preservation. It comes to museums and statues and battlefields. And I always try to like have a little uh, section in there, the museum corner, and try to find some little out-of-the-way museum that uh, people may not have heard of or visited that's worth a stop uh, if you're in that part of the country. The persistent pandemic 
Preservationist. It has been put out by one of our uh, long-term members, a little short newsletter dealing with the problems that you know, the pandemic is causing us when it comes to museums and preserving places and that type of thing. The idea is that we move forward and we'll just drop a P and then it just become drop pandemic out of it. And then it just becomes the, the persistent preservationist. Email you a PDF when it's ready. If you want to pay couple of extra dollars on your membership, you can get it in the mail. Full color pictures and all of that. Okay, Wesley, give us your closing argument. Why should listeners to the Seminole Wars podcast or members of the Seminole Wars Foundation want to come out to Charleston and be part of the conference that camp is putting on? Well, let me put this out here to members of your foundation. Usually at the conference, one of the things that is discussed is where should future conferences be? So feel free to come up, join us in Charleston, and be part of the discussion of where future conferences should be, and bring your arguments for Florida. I'll be 100% behind you. Visit our website. And your website is Camp Jamp, C-A-M-P-J-A-M-P.org. C-A-M-P-J-A-M-P.org. CampJamp.org. The easy to remember, and as details come out, they will appear there. Dr. Wesley Moody, thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. Oh, well, thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of The Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted, The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.